Oh, thanks for worshiping, guys. That was um, that was so sweet to see. I uh, I know if so. Actually, just to to fill you in, I'm I'm filling in for for Chris this Sunday. We were actually going to go over Ecclesiastes chapter two, um, but the Osmus family household is I think caught a bug. So um, just taking care of themselves during this time, uh, and we just uh, want to be prayerful for them and that they have a speedy recovery. What's what's good about Ecclesiastes is that it's not exactly chronological. You can kind of really start at any point because there's nuggets of wisdom in each section. So we will get to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 next week, but this week we'll be studying Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, but speaking of Pastor Chris, uh, he has always urged the pastoral team to lead in vulnerability and transparency. So we, before we dive into the book, I, I feel compelled to confess a condition that I have uh, with the church body. Um, I am indeed basic. Um, it's mild. It's benign. Um, I, I, I love the most basic thing about me. I love my pumpkin spice coffee in the fall. Who's with me? Um, I'm the kind of guy who will be sitting with my legs crossed, warmly embracing my hot cup of basic from Starbucks, and, and say to a person across the table, like, I'm just going through a season right now. I may as well be wearing Ugg boots. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm not even sitting across from anyone at the coffee table. It's just me going, mm, and just, yeah, talking to myself, so. But we've, we've all heard the basic cliches, you know, I'm going to pray on that, or I'm going through a wilderness moment, or my favorite, honey, you're just going through a season right now. Um, well, especially this last cliche can become basic to our ears. Cliches do come from somewhere, and... Um, Especially the one I'm going through a season right now comes from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. So if you do have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there with me. Um, it is in the Old Testament. Um, and while, while we can water down these truths and discount them as cliches, it makes them no less true as we delve into the depths of of the meaninglessness of time and paradoxically discover the beautifying purpose of what God does with the time under the sun for the glory of the Son of God. So if you would read on with me, when Ecclesiastes 3 will also be up on the screen. We'll start at verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear 
and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business of God, or sorry, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. I want to to first address the uh, first eight verses of this chapter that there is every time and season under heaven. There's a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith who in the early 2000s wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. In preparation for the book, he conducted more than 3,000 interviews of Christian youths in the U.S. to really get a read on what they were learning about God and what they thought about God. Smith found various common elements um, throughout these youths and had coined a term for an ideology that was being taught, and it was called moralistic therapeutic deism, an emphasis on the word therapeutic. One of the central elements of this coined term is that God's central goal in your life is for you to be happy all the time. This idea about God was in harmony with secular culture at the time with the positivity movement. The positivity movement encouraged that if you're going through a time of sadness, look on the bright side. And, and while that can be good in practice, with devastating intentions, this movement has tried to bypass or water down the painful experience, the painful times that we experience. Just as God has glorious purposes in the times of dancing, he also has glorious purposes in the times of mourning. Today, you may feel a pressure to be in a state of well-being all the time. When someone asks, how are you, you may feel pressure to say it's all good because there could be a chance that if you're not doing great, the other person may have a knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, well, then we need to fix this. We need to get you happy ASAP. Let's go through your options. But what King Jesus is telling us in his journal is that there is a time for every matter in this fallen world and and to take comfort because there is a purpose for the time that you're experiencing right now. Or perhaps in your day-to-day life, you've seen the pendulum swing the other way where people are tired of forcing themselves into a mode of positivity and tired of faking a smile during a time of sadness. I see this generation transitioning to an opposite outlook and dwelling in nihilism or prolonged sadness where there is lean time for gratitude. 
We experience a wide range of times as listed in the first eight verses, and we need to be honest with ourselves about the time that we're in and what God, what time God has led us to to show a particular part of his glory. We need to apply wisdom in the times that we experience. Uh, one common expression I heard growing up was, make peace, not war. You'll hear from groups communicating simple statements lacking wisdom that there is never, ever, ever a time for war. All war is unnecessary. When in verse 8, God's word says that there is a time for war. He's declared it even in the Old Testament. He's declared holy war on peoples, right? What should we have done about the Nazi who were, Nazis who are exterminating an entire nation of people? We can't declare peace with injustice. We needed to declare war and wisdom needed to be applied to the time at hand. The Holy One who dealt most wisely with time and timing was Jesus. There are several instances in the gospel where he states that his time or hour had not yet come. And what time was he referring to when he said that? The time that he was referring to was when he would suffer on the cross for his people. The very time that he was sent for. One instance of beautiful timing from the Lord Jesus is when he raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus approached a dead Lazarus, Mary fell at the feet of Jesus weeping. And in John 11, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and was greatly troubled. Some of you made this, uh, may have heard this verse before, one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. When he sees Mary weeping, he weeps. Now, if you don't know the story, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead moments later after Jesus arrives. So why does Jesus weep with Mary? Instead of telling Mary in that moment, stop crying and jump for joy because Lazarus is going to be alive in a few minutes, right? Jesus doesn't do this because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time to rejoice. It was time to weep. When you're going through something hard, have you ever had a well-intentioned friend attempt to comfort you in the midst of your suffering and say something like, why are you know why are you sad? You know, don't you know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, the thing that you're sad about? And in the moment, if you receive that counsel, you may feel worse from having a truth applied to your life. And and why? It's it's not like it wasn't the right truth, but it wasn't the right time to say the truth. Romans twelve fifteen says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. We take the example of Christ and apply wisdom to the time that is before us. To my fellow fellas, the men of God in this room, something we need to work on is when you're talking with your spouse and she's pouring out her heart or struggling with something, we need to ask ourselves in that moment, is it time to give solutions or is it time to listen? Our knee-jerk reaction as men may be to list out 15 bullet points of what she can do to correct the problem. And as she walks out halfway through your PowerPoint, you realize, oh, it wasn't time to critique, it was time to listen. 
For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now let's move on to our God-given task. In verses 9 and 10, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. How are we spending our time? I know that there's an inflamed version of the American dream that says if you're not working 60 to 80 hours a week, you stink and you're not doing it right. Go to places like New York City and spend five minutes just walking around in the city and you'll quickly realize that it's a frenetic race to nothing. It's such a beautiful display of ecclesiastical nothingness of what little gain there is when you spend all your time with busyness. You ask almost anyone who's obsessed with with wealth, like, hey, what time is it? And they'll say, it's time to get to work, son. And and you go, can we make this proportionate? There's a time for more than just busyness. And we all know where this leads to, this, this frenetic busyness. It, the only gain that you'll receive is the infamous cliche, yep, right? When you're on your deathbed, um, you won't be thinking about how much more time you should have spent at the office. But, but verse 11a says... He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything. Every time or season that you have experienced has two main beauties to it. There is beauty in the time itself, which we would call the silver lining. And there is beauty that is displayed after the time has passed. Even in the New York imagery, your time in that city will be a a rat race. You know, where's the beauty in that time? Well, the meaninglessness of the times we experience point to the ultimate meaning that is only found in God. We go through every day experiencing the meaninglessness and the monotony of all the times and seasons under heaven for the ultimate purpose of getting to a point where every human being has to ask themselves, what is the meaning in all of this meaninglessness? Now, when you come across that question, you can choose to suppress it. As Paul says in Romans 1, that we all suppress the knowledge and truth that God is the greater being that we are seeking in the busyness Or you can address that question. And while it may be scary to ponder, it's the start of meeting the meaning that you've been searching for that's only found in Jesus. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Every time, every time. The time you failed your driver's test. The time you won the raffle. The time your child was born. The time your child was sick. The time that you got in an accident on that four-wheeler, the time you graduated from college, whatever you experience, God is making it beautiful. How is he making all of those times beautiful? We don't really know, actually. We don't know fully. As it reads in the rest of verse 11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You guys know uh, tapestries? It's it's like a it's a thing you sew and there's a pretty picture on it. I know today, you know, we, we sell NFTs for forty grand, but 
in a tapestry, there's like a, there's, there's just a pretty picture on the front of it, and it should be up on the screen here. Oh, that's pretty. Um, God is the creator, and God is the artist. He is knitting you and investing the time in you to transform you into the beautiful image of his son, Jesus. But while you're still on this earth, the work of the tapestry, the image, is not finished yet. And like every artist, what happens when you try to look at the art too early? The artist pulls the art back and says, don't look, it's not finished yet. Even if you do sneak a peek, you may not even be able to tell what the image will be. And you'll have questions like, what's, the, what's that line over there? What's that weird shading over here? I don't really like this part. And yeah, it's because it's not done yet. Just as it is with this verse. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is an eternal longing in each of our hearts to see, to see, truly see the final purposes and glorious plans of God Almighty, but we cannot find it out. The image of our life and the image of the whole world where everything is beautiful in its time is not finished yet. As Ecclesiastes 11.5 reads, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We can see so little, but he sees the full picture. And as humans, we, we may be able to see one or two shades of beauty at any given time. The Lord who makes everything, who is also very, very good, sees the fullness of beauty in every time that has ever passed and ever will pass. He sees the finished work of the tapestry. The part of the tapestry that we see and are probably more focused on is if you flip over on the back and it looks like this monstrosity. Uh, For those of you uh, listening on, on YouTube or Spotify, we're looking at Technicolor spaghetti. But that's the beauty, isn't it? The, the, the Lord makes something beautiful in the mess, right? Let's look at both of them side by side. To the right, you have the messiness of our lives, behind the scenes what we can see, and to the left is what God is transforming you to be, the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Since we cannot find out what God is doing fully, we may be blessed enough to see one or two beautiful things out of the billion that we don't see. What do we do since we can't find it out? What's the prescription? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. It says, King Solomon says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil This is God's gift to man. So instead of endlessly suffering and trying to connect the dots and thread the lines in the messiness and the chaos, let us be joyful and obey God as long as we live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his work. Is there any better gift in this world than after a long day of work kicking your feet up 
having a pizza and, and, and a Mountain Dew and, and, and looking at the fruit of your labor with the sun in your face. There's nothing like a, you know, the time after a hard day's work, right? The, the good feelings that we feel after a hard days of work are the gift. You know, you, you've heard it said, hey, you've worked hard. Here, have a cold one. You deserve it. And it's like, no, we don't. We don't deserve it. Remember in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, work was actually cursed in the beginning. Work itself was cursed and that we would have to sweat and toil just to get food to survive. And this curse on work was the punishment for our sin. But God, in his loving mercy, gives us pleasure after a hard day's work. Good food, good, good drink. You get endorphins after you work out really hard. Those don't need to be there. God could have made taste, God could have made food taste like gruel or my mother's cooking. And at other, I'm totally kidding, by the way. Her, <laughs> I'm completely kidding. Her, her penne alley vodka is a treasure. Um, but instead he gives us ribeye steak. He gives us chili fries. He gives us wine. He gives us kombucha. And the endorphins thing is still crazy to me. I would never work out if I didn't feel good afterwards. Because of God's goodness, we don't just survive from our work. We have pleasurable moments in which we thrive on the goodness of God. You know, what mercy. And, and this is what Solomon is perceiving in God's goodness. Since we can't figure it all out, we might as well enjoy the gifts that God has given us. And trust in him and obey him and love him. What else does Solomon perceive? Let's look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Whatever God does endures forever. What does that mean? It means every time that we experience has been ordained by the full counsel of God. Ecclesiastes 1.11 reads that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What he wills and how he acts cannot be added to or taken away from. The fact that we can only find maybe one or two things that God is doing in the times of goodness and in the times of grief out of the infinitude that he is working with should leave us trembling in fear at his great power. Verse 15a says, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. What has been decreed in the eternal mind of God is now accomplished, and what is in the future has already been in his decrees. This verse also speaks to what we see naturally in the world. The time we see that may be new to us has already been. The rise and fall of empires. The seasons changing from spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And then the latter half Verse 15 says, And God seeks what has been driven away. 
So when things vanish out of time or driven away, God replenishes the things that have been vanished or driven away, right? A new king, a new government, a new system, a new generation. He's a redeemer. He replenishes it as time goes on. And since our God is a redeemer and a savior, I want to encourage anyone in this room who is in a time that they're not particularly enjoying. Maybe it's the worst time of your life. I've heard Pastor Chris say this about suffering, that the worst part of suffering really isn't the suffering in itself, it's the duration. It's how long you suffer. If you've been suffering for a long time and you cry to God, can you please take me to a better time? I want to look at an encouraging parable as we close today in Luke chapter 18. So you can turn there with me. It will also be up on the screen. Um, And this is spoken from the lips of Jesus, the God of time. And it's the parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. I've read this parable to stir myself to a deeper sense of prayer and to not lose heart. Jesus' eloquence and love is unmatched, and I, I find great comfort in this parable. But one thing I didn't understand in this parable was the timing. You see in verse 8 that God will give justice Speedily. Now, when I think of speedily, I think of a microwave. I think 17 seconds. Okay, God, serve me justice. However, you look at verse 7, and it says that he gives justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Seems a lot longer than speedily. Which is it? How long do I need to wait for resolve? Day and night or speedily? Day and night just seems so much more recurring and slower than speedily. It seems, it seems like endlessly suffering, waiting for an answer. How, how do we reconcile the different timing listed in this passage? How do we not lose heart when we are praying for a new or better season And it feels like it's not coming at all speedily. I believe the answer is found in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22. 
It reads, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. A rendering of this verse would be, I am the Lord. In its time, I will act speedily. The first part of this verse is so crucial in acknowledging the sovereignty of the great I am. We can't forget the one who is in control of the time that we experience. We are waiting on the Lord's timing, and when the time does come, he will act speedily. It's the exact same thing when we hear about Jesus' return, right? Jesus is coming soon. Well, how soon? We don't know. That's the Lord's timing to figure out. We're waiting on the Lord's timing, but when the time does come, how quickly will we be changed? We will be changed in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The Lord is patient in his timing, but you must also know that he is eager to act speedily when the time comes and give his people justice. How fast does he want you to be transformed and want all to be right? In the twinkling of an eye, but it is in his perfect timing in which we will see the finished work of the Lord that we cannot find out. And we will stand in awe at his glory forever and worship him for his workmanship, his workmanship of the finished tapestry. There was a long, long time when I was, I was praying for, for God to give me a spouse. Yeah, it was 12 years long. And uh, I cried to God, all the time, like day and night, yeah, like the the widow, and, and it just felt it just felt like I was never going to meet her. Um, now, I'm, now I'm happily engaged to a, a wonderful, beautiful, God fearing woman, and her, her name is Rachel. Um, God's timing in Rachel's life was very different from mine. <laughs> she got alone with the Lord and cried to Him, "Lord, shove my future husband in my face." And the next day is when I introduced myself and asked her out for coffee. <laughs> Talk about speedy. It's kind of a ripoff, to be honest. I'm like 12 years versus you just pray. I'm kidding, no. <laughs> uh, but God's timing is different for every soul in this room. But we can cling to his perfect timing and know that when the time comes, he will act. If there's one simple verse that I would want you to take away from this message to meditate and to fix your mind upon, it is Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hands. Now it's time to pray.